important to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands. We would also like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. As First Nations people, we invite everyone to share, be proud and be empowered by our culture, to come together with one voice of reconciliation. Kari singer's gentle welcome to country and performance of Yothu Yindi's Japanya setting the scene for the Consumer Health Forum's Shifting Gears Summit. In this first of a two-part look at the virtual gathering, Crokey Voices hears about empowering patients to take charge of their health, from innovative programs to the importance of consumer leaders and how sharing lived experience can transform services. You know, we didn't need to know how much someone knew. I needed to know that somebody cared. And later, some big ideas to reshape service delivery. Hi, we're Sharon and Cal and we're both young stroke survivors. Our vision is to mobilise young stroke survivors to lead their individual recovery journey and become an even more empowered version of themselves through innovative peer-led engagement. I'm Kate Carrigan and I pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation from where this podcast is being made and their elders past, present and emerging. Setting the tone for the summit was a strong voice for rethinking patient partnerships. Vincent Dumez is co-director of the new Centre of Excellence on Partnering with Patients and the Public at the University of Montreal. Now, Vincent, what is it about your experience as a long-time health consumer that drove you to doing this work? First of all, I'm, I'm a severe hemophiliac, so uh, I've been experiencing health for five decades now and and i was raised in a world in a health world where i was educated to take care of myself to self transfuse myself to diagnosis bleedings and so on i was raised in a mindset where it was important to educate patient and their family uh, the secret of being able to live normally and that's why i believe so much in partnership because since I'm very young, I know it's working. It can work. Well, you told the, the summit about the need for a patient-led revolution. Is that what you've been able to achieve yes. in Montreal? Yes, in Montreal, we're trying to put in place mechanisms to, to get to that. But, it's you know, it's, we, we have a lot to do also. I mean, it's a big shift. It's a shift that uh, that uh, unavoidable. I mean, uh, it, we, we're, we're going there, whatever, whatever will happen, because people want more and more to take care of themselves, and they have more and more capacity to take care of themselves. So that's why it's going to be more and more patient or citizen-led health. And whatever we know the system wants, I believe strongly today that, you know, the, the because, again, the capacity of, of people of having access to medical information, having access to auto-monitoring tools, having access to navigation tools on the net, on their phone, etc. It's leveraging a lot, you know, their capacity to be autonomous. So what have you been able to achieve and how's that uh, changing consumers' lives every day? This shift is changing the lives of consumers because actually they are more and more able to, to take enlightened decision for themselves. So it, we are shifting from a, you know, a, a situation where 
healthcare professionals were, were the only one, if, if I describe it bold, healthcare professionals were the only one being able to diagnosis, to, to treat, and so on. We used to say that, you know, people doesn't care about themselves, but actually that's, that is not true. 95% of people are systematically going on the web before meeting their healthcare professionals. So they, they, they want more information. They want to know more because they, they want to have control on their own health. In Canada, 50% of the population, and it's the same thing in the United States, 50% of the population are chronic, are chronic patients. They, they are, you know, living with, the, with a disease every day. So they want to be autonomous. They want to be less dependent to the system and be able to lead their life. If you want to lead your life, you're going to live your health. And, and what we do in Montreal, actually, we just accompany this shift. You know, we just help healthcare professionals and patients and families to understand what it means and how they can leverage this shift. So we help them to understand what is the nature of the change that is happening. And you spoke about the patient of today and the patient of tomorrow. Yep. What's the difference in your vision? The, the big difference is in the recognition of the knowledge of, of people living with a disease. It's amazing how you know the scientific health world denied for, for decades that people living with a disease develop a, a specific knowledge that is an added value for themselves and or for the system. That is, you know, the heart of the change. It's about knowledge. It's about recognition that as a patient, as an hemophiliac patient, I know how to diagnose myself. I know how to treat myself. I, I know how to navigate the system. And I have now tools to do that and to help me to, to do that. And, and when, I'm, when I meet my healthcare professionals, I want them to recognize that I have this knowledge. And that's how they will recognize me as, as, a, as a third partner of care. So a fully, a fully acknowledged partner, somebody who has information, who is acknowledged for having that information yes. Yes. and is truly part yes. of the solution. And it's very different from a patient-centered care. But patient-centered care was about capturing the needs of patients. And, you know, in an holistic way, in an interprofessional way, and, you know, with more coordination of services. But it's not about capturing or understanding or the recognition of, no, of patient knowledge. Because patient knowledge has always been seen as a, as a threat, has always been seen as something we don't understand and that we, we don't know how to deal with that. And now patient-centered care is coming progressively to questioning what is the, the place of the patient in the healthcare system and what is the, how the, the knowledge of patients and families can be you know, embedded in, in the care process and help the, the care process to be more efficient. But when they do that, what they do is partnership. We, we, we need to go step by step. And why are we moving up to partnership? It's because the heart of this the shift of this change, it's a, it's a knowledge trigger. Patient-centered care was focusing on patient needs. Patient partnership is, is fully re in recognition of, of the knowledge of patients as well as the knowledge of healthcare professionals and how it can be complementary, you know, in the care process. And you spoke about some amazing results that you've had through your program. Yeah, so actually we are in charge of a full curriculum in, the, in medical education on collaboration and patient partnership. So we have 250 patients now, very experienced patients and family members engaged as patient trainers in medical education from the first year to the, the fourth years of, of specialties. And, and we help, you know, we are uh, helping 
supporting our students to understand, you know, this shift and how they can support it and they can help, you know, and, and they can actually uh, endorse that and understand that it's an added value for them and, and again, not a threat. So we, we've been doing that for 10 years now and it's, we, we see how our medical students are, are changing, their mindset are changing. So that is very important because at the heart of the healthcare system, they are the, the clinical leaders. And we've been, you know, we've been experiencing also uh, project pilot in care to help care team to improve patient knowledge, patient competency inside the care process. So making sure that systematically when, when you, you, you take care of someone, caring is not only about curing, caring is about education also. You help them to understand what, what is happening in order for this person to be more autonomous and, and, and when she will be back, you know, this person will be back home, she'll be able to take care of, of herself you know, uh, easily. What we've been doing also in, in this mindset is to have patients as trainers for other patients. So again, you know, what we do a lot is we, 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 we build a, a education capacity in, in, inside care processes and by doing that, we, we, uh, for doing that, we, we engage experienced patients to help new patients. Crucial to transformational change is consumer involvement and central to that, consumer leadership, a theme taken up by long-time consumer advocate Kelly O'Callaghan from Gippsland in Victoria. Hi, Kelly. How are you, Kate? Great to talk to you. Good, good to talk to you. You spoke at Shifting Gears about consumer leadership. How important is that to getting consumers involved and helping them make the transformational change that's needed? It really is essential. And what we broadly accept as as consumer leaders out in the field is that there is really nothing within health systems, service delivery, you know, planning right through to policies and, and other organisational structures that isn't touched in some way by the lived experience of patients and carers and community members. And if that important and essential group of stakeholders are not involved in every element of what takes place in terms of decision-making and planning and progressing, whether it be improvement um, or operational context in organisations, then there's a significant gap between the expectations of those who use services and the organisations that are delivering them. And there's also better outcomes for patients and their families and the communities more broadly when people are better engaged in understanding health and having a level of influence over it. But on a you know very personal and individual level, for someone with a lived experience of a, a chronic uh, rare disease but also having had a cancer diagnosis or two in my time, you end up fairly disenfranchised with a system if you can't find your place within it other than as someone receiving a service. So what does it take to be that consumer, those that can lead and can put in the time to do this when at the same time, as you were just saying, you, you've got your own health struggles or you might have those of your children. How do you make the time to actually be that consumer that steps up? I think part of it's about making sure that you understand what it is that you want to do in terms of the role that you take. And there are different levels of engagement that you can have across the service sector. And we really should be very careful not to place particular burden 
on consumers to participate in a set way. There needs to be a, a broad range of flexible approaches to it. For me, um, I'm very fortunate to have been able to come out of working across governance spaces within health and working more broadly in the community sector, having a long-standing um, conditions and my rare disease, weakness granulomatosis, was diagnosed nearly 20 years ago. But having done so much work in terms of advising and supporting systems and individuals in relation to this work, that I've managed to blend it into the activities I do each and every day. So for me, it is the work I do. It's it's the work I love to do, and it's the work I get the opportunity to bring the most value to. But I think it's important that as organisations, what happens in terms of engagement is a flexible opportunity to, to participate because I think what that does is give you the broadest range of connectivity to patients, carers and community and it also means that when someone can participate and in a full and frank way can choose the level of participation, it's a lot more flexible and adaptable. I think what we don't necessarily have across the health sector at the moment is the capacity to do that well. And how far have we got to go? Well, we've still got a way to go, but I think intent is good and strong and that's what we really need to be focusing on, That what are the strengths that are inherent within the system. And as we saw, you know, 800 strong delegates at um, Shifting Gears Summit certainly indicated that there's a level of preparedness to engage from a health consumer perspective, the system can more readily make access a simpler path for health consumers and create a genuine connection between every element of work that they do um, between health consumers and their teams on the ground. Now, health consumers with the fullness of time I would like to see um, are, the te- are within those teams. It's just embedded. It's in management. It's in governance. It's in all the decisions that are made. And it's not even a second thought. It just has to be there. Um, we've got a way to go, but there's some really good opportunities for us to all to work together and improve the system more broadly, but also improve the personal experiences uh, for patients and uh, carers and communities more broadly. My name's Craig Cooper and my role has been as a consumer health and a patient advisor uh, with New South Wales Health as they've been developing, uh, elevating the human experience, a guide to action, which is a new uh, strategy for New South Wales Health to improve patient and carer outcomes within the New South Wales health system. So can you tell me how your work is helping to amplify the voice of consumers and put them at the centre of the debate of of transforming health services? Oh, I'm ensuring that both uh, consumer, patient and carer voices and perspectives are heard and understood as policy advice is being developed and as health system priorities are being decided upon. So typically, it's either coming from a health worker or a clinical services or a health system perspective. And my voice helps ensure that both the patient and the carer experience is considered and also involved in the strategy formulation and the decision-making process around what's important to New South Wales Health as a system. 
You told the summit we need to have the difficult conversations and we shouldn't shy away from that. What do you mean by that? Sometimes that uh, clinicians in particular uh, and the health system, they think they've got it right and they think they know what is the right thing to do. And when it comes to clinical guidelines and clinical outcomes and how to deliver services, they're 100% correct. They're 100% on track. But sometimes, sometimes it needs to be a broader conversation rather than just clinical service delivery or clinical guidelines. Sometimes they need to understand what the patient preferences are or the way that they're acting and relating to us, what the impact of that, what that has on us as patients in the system. So basically, they're the difficult conversations. The difficult conversations are helping the clinicians see things from a bit of a different perspective and have a broader understanding of how to deliver the, the, the clinical services. So it must be so difficult sometimes to get consumers empowered, to, to make them feel confident that they can have a say, that, that what, they, what their life experience is will make a difference. What are the challenges and barriers to getting them on board and getting their input? Well, some of the challenges are that sometimes consumers don't always feel confident enough um, and they often operate, or we often operate, from a position of passivity in the way that we relate to our doctors and the way that we relate to the health system. The other issue is that sometimes clinicians are fearful about what the consumer is saying because they're concerned that it's going to be criticism and it's going to be negative feedback. They don't always understand, the clinicians don't always understand that what we're trying to say is actually to try and improve things as a whole, not necessarily criticise them. And Craig, you work with marginalised people. You've worked with people in the criminal justice system, also those battling alcohol and drug addiction. They might even be less forthright, feel less empowered to speak up. Yep. So typically highly stigmatised people and populations and marginalised populations often don't want to participate or uh, find it very difficult to participate because they're so used to being treated Um, in a really bad way that they find it really hard to have their voice or if they when they do have their voice they're coming from um, a position of being constantly victimized within the health system so working with those populations people whether they be in the criminal justice system or people uh, with uh, drug dependency issues uh, working with those people in a way that so that they feel empowered and they feel heard rather than constantly criticised or put upon, is a difficult thing to do. And finally, one of the key messages of the summit, or one of the messages of the summit, has been that despite advances, there's still a long way to go. If someone is listening to this conversation in a waiting room, maybe frustrated at a long wait, feeling scared and alone, not knowing what's going to be happening, what's your key message to them? Don't be afraid to speak up. And it doesn't always mean that you need to put in a formal complaint. Make sure you have a trusting relationship with your doctor or with a nurse or with your pharmacist. Make sure you have somebody that's going to be able to listen to you and know what to do with what you're saying. So it's about trust and it's about ensuring that you're operating from a position of respect when you're giving feedback so that you feel heard and you feel valued and you know they're going to do something with your advice and with your feedback. 
Alongside the virtual presentations, the Shifting Gears Summit featured an animated chat line with delegates not only endorsing but also questioning and challenging some of the progress made so far, warning against box-ticking consumer engagement and also questioning whether enough is being done to reach Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and other First Nations consumers or those from culturally diverse backgrounds. Gundangara woman and conference rapporteur Lara Pullen spoke about the lack of Aboriginal people at the conference. She stressed that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people need allies as there are not enough to be everywhere doing everything. Among those using the chat line to share experiences of consumer collaboration was Rosemary Ainley, editor of Creaky Joints Australia and part of the Young Women's Arthritis Support Group. And every year we get invited by the staff at Monash University who run their medical school. And we come out and we actually have a group of us speak to the first year medical students. And it's just wonderful because we get to share our stories and the students ask us questions, but they get to see literally what it's like as we move around and you know some of us have got sticks and occasionally a walker we might have various you know supports on our hands and things like that and so rather than just seeing us as numbers you know our test results they're actually seeing what it's like to live with it and it's really empowering every year it's just got better and better to do this. How do they react? How does it end up making them better doctors in the future, better clinicians? Well, one example that comes to mind is one of the times we did it, we did everybody together in a larger room. And the people from our groups, we were sitting at a table while we were talking to them um, rather than at a lectern. And so they could see us where they're hearing our stories, but it wasn't until we actually got up to leave the room, because we'd been sitting for two hours, that they saw us reach for sticks and, you know, to take our time getting off from the table and to slowly hobble across the room. We weren't expecting it, but just to see the looks on their faces, and it was actually... It's a aha moment. It's like a, um, a light bulb moment for them. So, right, so that's what it looks like. And so many of them afterwards just came up and said, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your story. That was so appreciative. And for them, it made it real to actually remember because we kept telling them, just remember, we are people. Ask us about our families. Ask us about our lifestyles, not just about our conditions. It's almost indescribable how much of an impact, well, at least we think we had on them, uh, particularly when in our group there's younger people there. Like there was one girl that sometimes joins us that she's only a few years older than the students, and yet she's had um, rheumatoid arthritis since she was quite young. And so she's sharing stories about dating and, and um, partying, which is something they could really relate to at their age. So we're talking about young mothers struggling to hold their children. Uh, just There's the stories that they probably wouldn't, and think of when they think of arthritis. Yeah, the stories that are really important for them to know as they go into these, they launch into these careers as clinicians and you think this will really make a difference in the long term to the way consumers are treated into the future. Absolutely, yes, particularly for GPs and, and if they're going to be specialists, not to see us as our conditions, to see us as people. That's great. What's your mm-hmm. main take out of the out of the summit? What are you hoping for going forward? Okay, what I loved about the summit, um, I was involved in, or well, I was following two things, the um, digital health sessions and the COVID-19 and vaccine sessions. Uh, and for me, it's basically getting consumer engagement in all of those things. 
particularly with the with, to deal with vaccine hesitancy and vaccine information and so on. The, the organisation that I, that I was representing in that was actually Creaky Joint Australia, um, as part of our and our global our parent organisation is the Global Healthy Living Foundation. We are very much in that space about dealing with vaccine hesitancy and uh, misinformation. And OCHF is certainly trying to facilitate that. And I saw that um, Crokey Health was very much in that space as well. So uh, I think that's really exciting. And, and the same goes with telehealth and digital health and getting that people um, past the, the hesitancy with the safety risks and data security and things like that to just to see the benefits and alongside that to make sure it is accessible to everyone. Consumer advocate Kelly Foran told the summit about the need for better support for those facing serious health problems. Kelly, tell me your story. 18 years ago, I uh, was very healthy, happy, eight months pregnant, um, ready to to welcome our first baby into the world. I'd had a had a few health, um, I suppose, little blips on my my health radar. I had had terrible headaches, and uh, I did have um, nosebleeds, but I was assured by my my two doctors I had two doctors who said the exact same thing that it was all just pregnancy related so I ignored it and um, it it continued and then on uh, I was about uh, I thought I was about four weeks off having my baby and I was in Gilgandra for Christmas and became really sick um, with really bad headaches and ended up in Gilgandra Hospital and they actually said I had preeclampsia so they sent me through to Dubbo Hospital and at Dubbo Hospital a very lovely locum actually um, saw me walking down the corridor and I actually was walking up the wall because I you know had no uh, balance and he said look um, I think there's something else going on here and this actually all happened at nine o'clock at night and he said I, I think you know, can I come and have a look at, at you and see what's going on? So he did a few balance um, balance tests and then said, look, I think we need a scan and sent me off for a scan at 11 o'clock at night and then um, came back and said, you've got a massive brain tumour. Um, so from there, we ended up down at RPA Hospital. Uh, we ended up down there with no clothes, no phone, no wallet. I ended up then having my little boy two weeks later who ended up being 12 and a half pound born. So he was the biggest baby at RPA and oh my he was he was born with a lot of health issues as well, but being the biggest baby in a uh, high dependency ICU. So he was born with a lot of problems. We we then sort of stayed for another few weeks to try and fix his problems. At, at the time, Kelly, sorry to interrupt, but you're dealing no. with your your own issue with your brain tumour and you've got your baby boy with significant health issues as well. Yeah, exactly. It, um, it it was. I suppose that it gave me something to focus on, Kate. I uh, <laughs> I got to focus on him rather than you know feeling why me and feeling sorry for myself. So, um, 
And Jake was born with a thing called hyperinsulin anemia. And at that stage, he was the only baby in Australia with that To um, And it's the opposite of diabetes. So we had a fair few issues and nobody knew his life outcome. So that was a, a really tough gig for a while. And But we got through that hurdle and um, we went home and... While we were at home, um, we we were on a farm, so it it really is a bit of a comedy of errors. We actually we had a horse die on us while it was tied up at a trough. It got bitten by a snake, killed over dead. We um, we had a dog die. We got home to find all the chooks had been killed by a fox. <laughs> So uh, we were home for three months and then I went back to have my brain tumour removed and I underwent 16 hours of surgery and I awoke with a stroke on my right hand side and I could no longer talk, I couldn't walk, I couldn't eat on my own without food running out my mouth and uh, I was a commodity trader before that. So I'd gone from being quite high powered and dealing with the agricultural men out there and all of a sudden I could no longer walk I couldn't talk it was really tough and I had a three-month-old baby as well so so life was life was a bit of a challenge very difficult and one of the things you really did tell the summit was how alone you you felt you and your family felt when you had to go to the city for treatment that there was really nothing much there in the way of support for you guys who your lives have no. been totally uprooted. Kate, they had no idea where we where we were from, and you know a lot of the staff didn't ask. And you know, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying the staff are terrible for not asking. I'm saying that you know there were so many other things that were more prioritised than um, than us than our life. You know, my illness was was a high priority, but they didn't care about me. Nobody nobody asked. Nobody helped us with parking. Nobody helped us with accommodation you know at no stage did anyone say hey there's a tv room just down the corridor you know we could wheel your wife down there so she could be with her baby i understand health is there for issues with your health but health has to look at it as a person you know you're a person you you, you've got all these other things that are going on and they have to look at that because without looking at that and with just treating the foot, you know, or the arm or the head, you know, they're not looking at the big picture, which is in the end, sometimes it's a big picture that's going to bring you down. It's the mental health problems and and the struggles that you know, really make getting better a, a whole lot harder if you don't have those supports out there. As a result of these experiences and the lack of support, you've now set up the Friendly Faces Helping Hands Foundation. Yeah, we did. So uh, after those two major issues in a in a city hospital or city city hospitals in New South Wales, we um, my son then ended up um, at thirteen months old with cancer, and we ended up in Brisbane Hospital and we found the same thing, Kate. We found that there's amazing services out there but nobody tells you about them. And as a mum sort of trying to find things to help and support my son, I didn't know the names of everything. So we decided to try and set up a one-stop shop and the main thing we really needed back then was a friendly face and a helping hand. And, you know, we didn't need to know how much someone – knew I needed to know that 
somebody cared. And that's what we're there for. We make sure people know we care. We'll follow you right through. We have accommodation. We have parking. But we have the amazing other uh, not-for-profit services out there that can help and support. And you've really helped a lot of people with this since then, haven't you, since it was set up? Yeah, we've helped over 90,000 and that's in 11 years with no funding. Um, We have a a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline, which I answer and and help and support people through. You know, imagine what we could do if we had some funding and some support. We could uh, certainly make life so much easier for everyone. Incredible. And and how are your how's your health now and your son's health, Kelly? Absolutely terrific. We're we're both fantastic. Jake uh, Jake just turned eighteen and he's six foot one with a size thirteen foot. So <laughs> he's fantastic and, and I'm doing great and the greatest gift I can give to the world are my two beautiful children and they both have the biggest hearts out there and I um I'm so proud of them. They're my biggest achievement ever. Like Kelly Foran, the suggestions put forward at the Big Ideas Forum on day one of the summit were born from a desire to transform patient experiences in the healthcare system. For David Titow, it was Linkmate, a place to chat about shared experience of mental illness. As your Rigney wants bundled funding reform for maternity services to allow women to choose where and how they give birth. Penelope McMillan and Alejandro Pinara de Plaza are championing the use of digital platforms to improve social and medical inclusion for homebound people. Young stroke survivors Saren Chamberlain and Caleb Rickson want peer-led engagement for young people experiencing stroke, while Sarah Barter is passionate about nurse-led multidisciplinary community health centres freely accessible to all Australians and partly inspired by the Aboriginal community control sector. The ABC's Ellen Fanning hosted a discussion with the five Big Ideas participants. Here's an edited version of the conversation with those behind two of the ideas, David, Saren and Caleb. David told Ellen his idea was born out of he and his father's shared struggles with mental illness, his anxiety and his dad's depression after a marriage breakdown. It really wasn't until I opened up about you know my own challenges to dad and it, it sort of paved the way for a really not only emotionally charged conversation but he felt heard and 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 felt as though as that his struggles were validated because you know his own son was going through much of the same thing every day and through this conversation we actually explored you know additional uh, approaches to getting on top of your mental health and he actually started engaging with dancing classes in his local community so he was doing you know salsa ballroom, waltz, meeting new people, making new friends. And the results were just truly transformative. I really just want to take that and develop a platform that could preventatively support you know, all Australians going through any sort of emotional difficulty or, or mental health challenge. So we're imagining these are people who, for whatever reason, are not being heard or can't articulate for whatever reasons uh, what they're going through. Is that it? That sense of isolation? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think uh, just uh, using COVID as an example, I think, you know, we've all sort of been impacted and our mental health has been impacted by that in in one way or another. And isolation is definitely a part of it. But it could be anything as just, you know, getting something off your chest. Um, You know, if you've gone through something like, I don't know, if you're bereaving uh, the, the loss of a loved one and that's affecting your mental health in a way 
that you know you're, you're not able to um, you know get the support right away from from a GP or specialist, but you can from a mate. Then you have someone there who can show up to listen um, and and just be there for you and kind of work with you to develop strategies to to overcome it. Can you tell me first about your experience, the impact um, of the stroke on you and how that has led you to come up with this strategy? Sure. Well, I suppose, um, I mean, where I'm at now, which is eight years on, um, I basically was left side paralysis completely. Um, I'm left now, I suppose, with, without, with a paralysed left arm and no sensation on my left. But I suppose this all came about because... Um, I was feeling really alone, you know, having a stroke at the age of 37 was something like, what's going on? There weren't anyone else that I sort of, you know, knew of. Um, and it just, just, it was so isolating and just lonely. I'm 36 and I had my stroke 12 years ago, just when I turned 24. Every stroke is very different. Every brain injury is different. Every lived experience is different. I guess similar to Saran, I have, um, I'm left side affected. I had a paralyzed left vocal cord, so I was non-verbal to begin with, um, which was incredibly um, challenging for my mental health and my occupation at the time. Um, but yeah, I've got, um, I guess, numerous things because the brain stem is essentially like your motor highway to your life function, breathing, walking, talking, balancing, um, swallowing saliva. Because mine was damaged um, significantly from a massive stroke, um, all those capacities have had to be built again um, and reformed in a in you know a way that's hopefully empowering and and certainly um, rebirthed a, a kind of a new dude. The feeling of the connection with someone just gets it. They've sort of got that shared commonality. It's a relief. It provides a space that is actually really beneficial for your mental health to to relax and to feel seen and your self-worth is increased. So you are essentially um, more open and you're more resilient and more able to, I guess, communicate messages with someone and especially in the in the case of this this particular project. The last word this time from Summit Rapporteur and Consumer Health Forum Youth Forum member Roxanne McDonald. For me, I think it's definitely about consumers being drivers of that change. But there's also, I guess, as a young person, there is that element of, I think, consumers educating younger consumers. So often, you know, the way that we learn to be these empowered, confident consumers, as young people... That, that might not come until later. So being able to do that at the beginning so we can get young people's voices is really important so they can also be at that table setting the menu. And co-design was something we heard a lot of over the two days. What does that mean to you? I am a really big advocate of co-design and for me that means consumers are there at that first stage of um, discovery of finding out different ways we can do things. They're at that stage where they're coming up with ideas and brainstorming. They're at the stage where, you know, they're zoning in on what what could be the solution to this problem and they're there at that evaluation as well. I think also we need to be ensuring that we're using the right, the right words. So sometimes co-design isn't actually what we're doing and also it might not be the right thing for what we're 
what we're trying to achieve. And the reality is co-design is very resource intensive time-wise and money-wise. It might not be a co-design model that is best for you. It might be, you know, partnering with one consumer to work on a project, or it might be in one instance, looking at co-evaluation. If you haven't done co-design before, I think co-design is a really big thing and it really requires commitment and skills. And I think in co-design, you you really need a variety of people. And that, that in itself is really in, intensive. And, and I think that there is always going to be that challenge of how do you take individual experiences and almost generalize them to a population. And I think that's where that that concept of a wise consumer comes in. So yes, we heard that about the wise consumer. So the consumer that can say to a clinician, yes, you can give me that treatment, but is that what I need? And will that make my life better in the long run? Yeah. And I think, I think that concept of a wise consumer can take a lot of time to become that wise consumer. There's lots of trial and error and often Young people who are wise consumers are people with chronic illness. They're interacting with the system a lot and maybe have been since they were children. But, you know, all young people should be able to become wise consumers. We heard quite a bit about educating young, educating young people and almost like, so learning about interacting with your GP, what does the health system look like? But also I think there's this important element of, Empowering young people to ask questions and to be able to maybe not challenge, but to say, like, are you sure? Or or even just the confidence to sometimes get a second opinion and just trust that if something doesn't feel quite right, that that's okay. I think young people so often, they come into the real world and they're like, well, everybody else is, has been here for a really long time. I must be the person who doesn't know. Another big theme at the at the summit was the digital revolution. Now, as a young consumer, you're somebody who's all over that. What do you see as the big opportunities and also some of the challenges and some of the concerns about the move to the use of more digital technology? I actually see the biggest opportunities in some of that really boring back-end stuff, more of that digitalising area obviously there's also like those really really big opportunities in terms of AI and uh you know some virtual reality things in mental health but I think when it comes to digital health there's lots of challenges around around privacy and you know systems and ensuring that not even just clinicians and consumers have the skills, but that, you know, the system has the skills. You know, we need to ensure that it's such an opportunity for improving access, especially for people like rural and regional people, people where, you know, transport might be an issue. It might be that they have disabilities and actually getting out of the house is really difficult. And there's all those opportunities for access, but we also need to make sure that we're not creating barriers for other people. And that came through really, really clearly in the conference. There were lots of concerns about older people who might not be as tech savvy. There's also, you know, maybe you don't have access to the internet, whether that's because you're rural or regional or because 
you can't afford it. We need to make sure that it's not just another way that we're creating barriers for often really marginalised groups. And into the future, after the summit, you're fairly confident of, of change, of transformational change? Absolutely. I mean, as, um, you know, Vincent Dumez said, like, we're in this moment of revolution and that's so exciting. And the the conference was energising because the people were energising. Like, they were energised people. They were inspiring people. They're working on all this, inc- like, incredible things. And like like I said, I think consumers are the drivers of this transformation and you could see there they are driving this transformation. In part two of our look at the Shifting Gears conference, more on the digital revolution and the questions it raises, quality and safety and the rise of the wise consumer and the value of challenging whether care options are necessary is value better than volume. That's it for the first in Crokey Voice's two-part special as part of Crokey Conference news service coverage of the Consumer Health Forum's Shifting Gears conference. You can find out more by using the hashtag Shifting Gears on Twitter or at Crokey for related articles. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Crokey News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you.